We all saw the headlines over and over throughout 2022. Parents exposing corruption in Loudoun County, families fighting explicit content in their kids' schools, as well as the attempts to cut parents completely out of the process when it comes to indoctrination on sexuality and gender. But will all this passion with speaking up translate into policies that actually help families? Are Virginia's politicians listening? We'll soon find out as Virginia's General Assembly kicks into gear. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our president, Victoria Cobb. Well, I just got to start out on a lighter note before we get into all these heavy topics. And I saw going around on social media this hilarious clip. It really made me laugh out loud. Uh, the pastor, John Piper, he's, he's a well-known pastor, well-respected. But he was in the middle of his sermon. He was doing, shall we say, some enthusiastic hand mannerisms. And his his Apple Watch um, alerted him, was asking him if he had fallen down and needed help. So let's just watch that moment. God is God. You know what? My phone is telling me that I fell down. I'm okay. I did not fall down. Did you hear it? This has happened twice in my life. I, I'm preaching and they think I fall down. I'm not falling down. I'm standing up. I'm preaching. Good grief. Apple. Okay, I can so totally relate to this. I think I've shared before how my technology is just getting really intrusive, almost motherly lately. I've shared how my car keeps asking me if I need coffee breaks when I'm fully awake. How about you? Yeah, well, I can relate to this because I am a person that uses a lot of hand gestures. As we all know, it's kind of a joke around the office because it's hard to get a picture of me without my hands in the air when I'm speaking. So I can really appreciate the John Piper situation. And I actually was in a meeting just a couple of days ago, and I literally hit 10,000 steps as I'm talking, sitting in a chair. And so I actually, wow. yeah, no, this is a real thing. <laughs> um, but I will say this. I've never had it think that I'm actually falling down and needing help, which I saw a joke the other day that says, how do you know you're old, is when you fall down, either people laugh or people panic. <laughs> I was thinking about the Apple Watch thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, now, poor John Piper. That's terrible. we have Apple to panic for us. That's not good. I don't need any extra. <laughs> well, diving right into today's topic, it is game time for us here at the Family Foundation because the General Assembly has kicked off this week and we are all very busy tracking the issues that we all care about, that we know you care about, the life, family, and freedom issues. And we're going to get into that today. But first, I did want to share some really encouraging news. Now, a lot of you that listen to this program might remember that we had Attorney General Jason Mieras come on. And he talked about how he convened this special grand jury to, to hold the Loudoun County School Board accountable, especially as it relates to this sexual assault case that they had where uh, there, there was a boy wearing a skirt, uh, assaulted a, a young girl in a, in a school bathroom, female bathroom, and then was sent to another school where apparently he assaulted another girl. And so th some very disturbing information came out with how the school handled this. And thankfully, thanks to our attorney general that, you know, we're seeing accountability, justice for the parents and students in that. Um, but there's been another huge victory coming from our Founding Freedoms Law Center. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, it's actually really exciting. Um, and I should backtrack. We had one victory against the Loudoun County School Board that already happened with our Founding Freedoms Law Center, where we took them to court and basically said, no, you didn't have a right to shut down that meeting where they blocked parents out. And so that was a big win. And we really followed that up by representing one of the parents who was essentially supposed to be blocked out. So if you remember that meeting, there were, in particular, there ended up being two people arrested because they theoretically trespassed. And so this was the father of the student that you just mentioned, the victim of the sexual assault, and a guy named John Tiggis. And John and this guy were arrested for trespassing because, in theory, they were supposed to have been exiting the, you know, leaving the meeting because, in theory, this, this superintendent declared the meeting as an unlawful assembly, and they continue to try to make the points that they were making, the, the, to continue with the public comment that they came to make. And so what's really great is that we actually, in our Founding Freedoms Law Center, defended John, and, and it, it comes down to these two claims. One was, did, was there any authority to shut down that meeting? And so we're back to the point that that meeting should not have been shut down, that the superintendent falsely declared it not a legitimate public meeting. And that was the basis of the trespass. And then, of course, the other piece is the judge looks at when you look at a trespassing charge in general, you simply look at did the person in good faith think they had a right to be there, which he Mm -hmm. did. (laughs) So anyway, it's a big win. And I think this continued accountability for these Northern Virginia school boards that have just run amok and trampled parental rights is really important. And this is the same superintendent that is currently facing perjury charge coming out of the, the special grand jury. And I just think it's noteworthy. If if you guys remember, um, there were some 250 signed people, parents, signed up to speak at this meeting. At some point, at one point in the meeting, the school board gets up and walks out, and only 50 people had spoken. And that's why John Tiggis was passionate. Like, we signed up to speak, and we're going to speak. And then that same superintendent comes out and says it's an unlawful assembly. Well, that's very intimidating, if you're just an average parent, an average citizen sitting there. And that's why this is so encouraging, that it is worth speaking up. It is worth asking questions, um, holding your school board accountable, and the parents have received justice here. Well, that's why we thought it was important to go to court. You have to stand for the right of parents. You have to make it clear that we want parents engaged in this process, that school boards are often in the wrong when they're trying to, I mean, we've seen everything from barring the room and calling it a closed door meeting to limiting the comments to 30 seconds to having a lottery. I mean, we've seen some ridiculous things done by school boards to actually make sure that parents don't have a voice. And so that's why we thought it was important. And this ruling is really important to just continue down the path of we're going to hold school boards accountable. Well, I think that all segues really nicely in what we're talking about today. And that is action that we expect to see in the General Assembly on parental rights. Tell us what you expect on this front, because especially now that we have what happened in Loudoun County, I know all the legislators are well aware everybody's watching them on this issue. Yeah, we're so excited to see that parental rights are having their day, to see that not only are these things happening at school boards, but we actually have legislation being brought to help these parents have a better voice. And so there's going to be a number of bills that really seek to empower the parent, seek to give them the information that they need about their child. So it's a combination of things to make sure that when a child is in a school system, it's not like we're turning them over to the government and we as parents no longer have any ability to engage. And so um, I guess, you know, there's a lot of places we could start as far as bills. Um, I particularly like a bill that is going to be introduced this year um, that just simply says we need parental rights 
not just in our code, but in our constitution. I think that's a really important thing to just take it to that next level because it's fundamental. It is so basic and nothing should ever stand between a parent and their ability to rear their child. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, parents at the Slaughter County meeting that were getting arrested, a lot of what was happening was centering around that parents were upset about this transgender issue policy. And so we have a bill addressing that, right? Yeah, there's going to be a really great opportunity to make sure that parents are a part of the process of dealing with a child who struggles around gender issues. And so the bill that in particular that I think is going to be really effective, carried by Delegate Durant, and it's basically the concept is if a child says, I want to be referred to with different pronouns in the school building, if they're questioning their gender, if they're wanting to walk into another bathroom, that's the moment that the school has to notify the parent, has to get the parent involved, that the parent has some say at that point. And I think it's just a follow-up of the transgender model guidelines that Governor Yunkin has been fixing with his administration. So this is kind of putting it into the code. Thanks for joining us for Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. If you're enjoying the show, help us encourage others to speak up by giving us a five-star review and sharing it with friends. Thanks for listening. Well, you know, I think so much of this controversy at its heart gets back to schools getting out of their lane with improving academics, focusing on academics, and getting into this social engineering. And we're really seeing that with counseling. Now, we all know, I think we can all recognize that there are students in crisis situations that need that kind of help. But what we're seeing a lot of that's really disturbing is maybe students being asked really inappropriate, intrusive questions during some kind of woke program, or even just saying something more innocent about their family, and then the family later gets uh, it gets misconstrued, and then the family later gets this call from social services. I mean, we are hearing stories about that. And so there is a bill that is going to address this and try to bring some balance back there. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a great point. We don't want to gloss over that there are child abuse situations, there are reasons kids go to counselors, but we have got to make sure that in any other case, the parent is central in the life of the child and that they're not getting counseling outside of the the, the purview of the parent. And so I do love this bill because it's a, it's a bill coming up. Um, we actually had it introduced last year and just did not get it all the way through to the governor, but it's by Delegate Ransone. And again, it's simply saying if a kid comes to a counselor about these kind of difficult issues, gender issue, in, in, gender issues in particular, that the parent's going to be notified and in this case actually be allowed to be a part of the counseling if that's what's best for the kid. And so again, parents are the best source of help for a kid. So this idea that we keep boxing them out, we're missing probably what is the key to helping them is not just the counselor, but the counselor and the parent together is probably right. a great combination. Right, because we have all this data that makes it clear the parent's involvement is key to the kid's success. And in fact, is one of the most powerful things, even more powerful than what's going on in that school. Um, so that should be respected. And I just want to mention this bill, if you look at the actual, well, some of the proposals that I've seen, uh, they would have to obtain written parental consent before social or personal issues are addressed with the child. So it would also include other sensitive issues in addition to the gender identity Absolutely. and sexuality. Think about this. We need a parent consent for everything else under 18. We keep their medical information so private. We, we involve the parent except in this 
this one arena that we've carved out to make it sound like we're going to have these confidential conversations and that the parent isn't helpful, necessary, and good in that role. And and interesting, the contrast between this bill and, for example, the bill we saw talked about before session that we've mentioned on this show before, which was going to be introduced by Delegate Guzman, and it has been introduced in the past, this idea that a kid can come in and say to a counselor, I'm struggling with my gender, my parent is not on board, and then all of a sudden, we this bill that she introduced would have changed the definition of child abuse to say if a parent is not affirming and they're somehow harmful in in the child's mind, they could be actually guilty of child abuse. So we could have these, I mean, the difference between having these confidential conversations and making the parent the bad guy to this bill where we're yeah. saying we're going to have conversations and we're going to involve the parent and see what's really going on and, right. and be a collective help for this child. Yeah, it's, Night it's and day. the difference between replacing the parent with the government school official um, and recognizing, like you say, that the parent ha- it's a not partnership. only yeah, it's a partnership. and our primary responsibility should be the parent. So, we're, and then for the go, you know, you're almost making the government school sitting in judgment over the parent with that. If you're not affirming enough, and, you should be reported. And keep in mind, it's like they're in that kind of a bill. You're starting a CPS investigation before you've even had the conversation with the parent. You've got the government coming in in an indicting kind of way. That is such a scary thing to ever imagine. Um, So let's just get the conversation going with the parent on the front end and see what's really going on. I really hope that bill makes it through to the floor. There is a possibility of that. So Yes, I, it amazes me there's any opposition to that. I, I am absolutely floored that there are actually people, delegates and senators, who would stand on the floor of the legislature and say, no, we think the parents should not be involved in this conversation. That is amazing. And that anyone would vote for a, an elected official that would say, no, I don't want you involved in the life of your child. Mm-hmm. That's kind of mind-boggling yeah. to me. Let's keep holding them accountable. Another issue that's finding its way from school board meetings to the state capitol is this upset that parents have been feeling over the sexually explicit, very graphic content in their child's schools, even elementary schools. And we've seen parents giving very emotional testimonies about this over and over all across the state. So that's going to be addressed in the state capitol. Now, Governor Yunkin did sign a bill last year, a parental rights bill, that took the first step in addressing this sexually explicit content issue. Um, but but there's still some you know more work to be done on that. Tell us where we're at with that. What we're going to see on that issue? Yeah, I think uh, folks might remember Governor Yunkin. The bill that he signed last year really addressed curriculum. It really addressed what was being taught in the classroom. So if a child was being taught something that had sexually explicit information in it, the teacher had to ahead of time notify the parent, and there had to be an alternative. So that's kind of within the space of the classroom. But there's still this concern of what's in libraries, in school libraries. I think parents have been outraged by what they're finding that their kids can easily get their hands on and read, and and they have, a parent has no knowledge of this. And so there's been this kind of gap between what happens in that classroom and what's happening in still within the school building, still available to their child. And so what we're looking at this year, which I think is just a wonderful step to try to fill that gap, is bills. Every school system has been addressing this differently. And we're really looking at a bill that simply says, why don't we, uh, there's actually a couple versions, so I don't want to speak to one particular bill because there's a couple versions, but, you know, why don't we make sure there's a review done? What's the review look like of every book that enters the library? And then if a kid checks out controversial books, can we notify the parent? Why? I mean, we have electronic systems for everything. It Mm -hmm. should be pretty easy to make an electronic system that just says, hey, book went out, attached to this kid's name, email goes to parent. Not that complicated. And we've had representatives do things. I just want people to understand the content we're talking about here. 
like try to uh, make copies at a Kinko's or something of the content and then have the, the copy center. I don't know if it was that exact one, but have the copy center tell them, wait, we got to call the police because, because, you know, this might be obscenity. This might be um, harmful to children. Or parents that have this read them. This is what they got out of the school library. Have you seen these parents that have read them in school board meetings and everybody freaks out that they're being yeah. read out loud? There's and children yet in here. <laughs> And yeah, and and I can remember this happening years ago on the floor of the of the Senate. We had a senator that was trying to make headway on these issues, and he literally started reading. And they had to clear the pages out of the Senate because pages are kid level, you know, ages. And mm-hmm. I mean, if if it is inappropriate to be read in public, parents should get to know that their child has access to this. If not, in some cases, they just shouldn't even have access to it. In some mm-hmm. cases, we're talking about things that really should qualify as obscenity or pornography and really don't need to be in a library in a K-12. Remember, these are K-12 schools. The oldest child might be 18 that would get a hold of this book. This mm-hmm. is not a library for yeah. adults. And they can just wander in there and grab it, and you would never know. So we do know there are some local schools, um, the school systems in Bedford and Chesterfield that actually have a system in place where parents can be signed up to be notified of what their kid checks out. Um, It looks like that idea might be mirrored in some legislation moving through. Yeah. I mean, why not take a good good idea and and just spread it to the other counties I, I you know oftentimes we hear about best practices and usually it's whatever school pays the highest salary we hear about how every school system needs to do that but yet these ideas where a school system is actually handling this well they they have a hard time circulating into other counties and so I think this bill will be a great step forward to get other counties to realize there's simple ways to address this now I will warn you, I remember this from many, many, many years ago. We fought very, very hard as an organization to simply say that computers that were in school libraries ought to be filtered. Um, mm. That sounds crazy now. Mm, yes, <laughs> you know, it does. I mean, think about how old that is. That, But we had that debate, and I will tell you, we were fought so hard by the library association. So we expect there to be obstacles to this mm-hmm. legislation, despite the fact that it seems very common sense to us. If this went through, I guess the way it's being talked about right now, parents would be automatically enrolled in the system where they would be notified unless they said, I just, I don't need to know this information. Yeah, I mean, a parent can can remove themselves, but it ought to be, their starting point in all school systems ought to be, we let the parent know, we notify the parent, we give the parent choice unless they abdicate, they proactively abdicate that to the government. It shouldn't be the other way around where we assume parents don't need to know, we assume that they don't need this information, they don't want to consent, or that they're somehow a bad actor, and therefore we leave them out. That's the distinction, and that needs to be the premise of all legislation and all policies as we interact in public schools. So on all these things we're talking about today, whether it's the counseling and parents being involved in that or the transgender issues and parents wanting to be notified if their kid is working with school officials to experiment with their gender or adopt a different pronoun um, and the library issues. If you know if you're hearing this and you really want to jump in and get involved and help this get through, what can people do? The easiest thing is to make sure that they are on our website at familyfoundation.org and they sign up for our email alert system. And the reason that's important is because legislation moves so fast through the General Assembly. It's only a 45-day session. And so this bill is going to hit a committee. Then it's going to three days later hit the floor of the House. Then it's going to go over to the Senate. It's just for people to keep up. Our goal with our emails is, hey, this bill is right now in front of your legislator. Now's the moment. Click the button. And we try to make it so easy for people to just simply send their thoughts to their legislator. You don't even have to know who your legislator is. We're going to let you know by your own address. We're just going to help you make that connection. So make sure you're signed up for those alerts. Uh, We send text out when there's a a debate going on that you can watch. Make sure you're signed up for that at familyfoundation.org. 
And uh, so today we barely touched the tip of the iceberg with all of this. And there are many important issues that are going to be rolling through, um, including the life issues. You know, there's special elections going on that are going to affect that that we can talk about more. Um, the, the school choice, the education success accounts. Uh, we have so much to talk about. So stay tuned. That's going to be coming up in the weeks to come. Um, but I did just want to quick let everyone know that we are having some very important days of action. Tell us about this first one coming up. Well, we're really excited for the Virginia March for Life because that's the moment that we come down to the Capitol and we make our voices heard around the life issue. And there are going to be some great bills. We can't get into all of them now, but there are going to be some great bills where we can protect the unborn. So I would say that's the one we want to make sure you've got on your calendar. Again, February 1, people can come down. There's some morning opportunity to meet with your legislator. And then the actual rally and March part starts around noon. So if you want to know about that, Defending Life Day, I think is what we're calling it. Then you have the march that Victoria's talking about. Just check out VAProLifeDay.org. That's VAProLifeDay.org. We probably have a banner on our website about that, too. Well, it's that time again. Time for our Inconceivable Moments Award. This is where we're featuring examples of the absolute lunacy and craziness that happens when cultural leaders try to give guidance completely apart from biblical principles. And we're calling this the Liberals' Most Inconceivable Moments Award. Inconceivable! Well, this week, we are doing something a little bit different for our inconceivable segment. You know, usually we use a lot of satire, and it's usually about something kind of negative and dismaying. But this week, we're actually talking about something positive that was out of the box for our culture. And I know uh, it's still fresh on a lot of your minds what happened with Damar Hamlin, this young 24-year-old safety for the uh, Buffalo Bills that we all just were stunned to see just collapse on the field after what looked like a routine tackle. But one thing that stood out to me in the midst of all this as we were all praying for them and and we saw other players on the field praying for them, uh, the next day um, we saw this amazing prayer from uh, NFL Live ESPN analyst Dan Orvalosky. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that name right. But what was amazing about was was the reaction afterward. But before we talk about that, let's just hear that prayer real quick or an excerpt from it. I've heard it all day like thoughts and prayers. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head and I'm just going to pray for him. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand that are hard uh, because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. So this was just a really powerful, heartfelt prayer that just moved all of our hearts and has got, you know, it's gone viral on social media. But what's interesting, first of all, besides the general shock of seeing three SPN analysts all bowing their heads together on live television praying, was the reaction afterward. People seemed stunned by this. In fact, there were national headlines like this one, live TV moment stuns America. Yeah, I have to say, as you watch this, to think about this moment being so out of the box, I I don't know, it's like this was such a wonderful moment. The flip side is it's so rare and so abnormal. That's why people are talking about it. And I'd like to think there was a time where it wasn't so rare and so abnormal that people would, uh, that it would go viral. Yeah, because people on social media were saying this was very brave of Dan to do. And I found myself asking, you know, just think about this. Why is that brave? You know, why isn't it normal to just say a very heartfelt, humane, compassionate prayer when you see someone in crisis in a public forum? Well, it's brave because it's now 
countercultural to pray in public. It's not just countercultural. I think people know that they can lose jobs over this kind of thing. I think people in the back of their minds know the stories of people who have stepped out in faith and have actually lost their job. I'm thinking, of course, of Coach Kennedy, ironically the same sport, maybe at a lower level in, in the high school level. But I'm literally thinking about this case where this coach simply led prayer. He actually was praying by himself originally, and that is what cost him his job. So, of course, people are thinking, well, how brave is this? This guy's doing it on television in the connection with football. Now, I do have to say, thankfully, we've had the U.S. Supreme Court exonerate Coach Kennedy, and so now I'd love to see a lot of coaches praying at their uh, 50-yard lines before the game or whatever or after the game. Well, I just want to point out, it wasn't that long ago in our nation's history where prayer was considered normal. We had presidents praying out loud. I mean, you had Abraham Lincoln that prayed a lot. And in fact, the Emancipation Proclamation invokes the the help of our gracious, how did he put it, a gracious favor of Almighty God. I have to mention the one that was uh, during World War II. People probably remember this one. Franklin Delano Roosevelt prayed during the D-Day invasion of Normandy saying, Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves to in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. I mean, those are the kind of prayers that were from our presidents at the top. Yeah. Leading the country the way it should be led. Eli, you're, you're a huge sports fan. What were your thoughts on this whole thing? I was so moved that I was sharing with my family back home. Look at these people speaking out for Jesus. And I mean, it, it was a great moment, but a humbling moment that it took this for people to yeah. to remind us about the importance of of praying to God for well, help. And you got to mention the, the two teams that came together over the weekend, the Titans and, and I think it was Jacksonville came together and the two teams were praying together on the side of the field. That was a pretty cool sight too, because um, A, opponents and B, actually praying together. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, just to wrap up here, it's clear we have reached an inconceivable place in our culture where just saying a simple, humane prayer for someone in crisis is considered brave and countercultural. Um, however, I think we had hope when we saw that there is still this huge desire in the human heart to have the freedom to call out to God in a moment of crisis when you see someone hurting, that American people still clearly want that. So we can take hope in that. Thanks for joining us for this week's Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. Visit us at familyfoundation.org. That's familyfoundation.org. See you next time. And don't forget, we are stronger when we speak together.